Thank you, guys. You know, this is uh, an exciting week uh, any, you know, in any church as you're walking through uh, Passion Week, and I'm excited to walk this out uh, with you guys. I'll tell you, my prayer has been, and, and if you were here last Sunday, we talked about you know, preparing our hearts for uh, you know, this season of what it is that we celebrate, and, and again, not missing the main thing, right, in the midst of, in the midst of a new service on Saturday and multiple services on, on Sunday and the Good Friday on Friday, to not miss you know, what it is truly uh, that we celebrate at, at Easter. And so, again, I encourage you to take this journey with us. You know, each day we can just take that passage of Scripture and, and just kind of walk through the week is, is really my prayer, that we kind of just walk through the week to, to come to Friday together, to gather around the cross, and then obviously on Resurrection Sunday. And so I believe God uh, is doing great things. Take your Bible, if you would, and turn with me to the Gospel of Mark. So we're going to hit the pause button. If you've been with us, we've been in Luke, as you know, since uh, December of 2012. Just kidding. It's not been that long. Since this past December, we started in Luke, and so we made our way through the first two chapters for Christmas, and we stayed there. And so now we come to uh, a little bit of a pause in that series. And if you've been with us, you've seen, I think there's, I know for me, there's been some great connections, um, you know, even kind of just pulling out of Luke as we now enter into this week, because, you know, you kind of see in details what's happening in the life of Jesus, what's happening in the life of these disciples. And we've, we've seen this all the way back to really Luke 4. If you go back to Luke 4, you see that time where Jesus stood in the, in the, in the synagogue and he rolled out the, the scroll and he preached from Isaiah 61. Uh, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. I've been sent here to set the captives free, to give sight to the blind. But the Bible tells us that even at that point, that the religious leaders had, were, were, were seeking to kill him. You know, again, that he was countering religion. And he was ushering in, again, the new covenant, that a Savior was coming. And what's so interesting about this week is simply, and you've seen this as we've walked through Luke, so many times Jesus would do something remarkable. And he would look at the individual, maybe who the miracle had been accomplished upon, or even the crowd, and he would say what? Do not tell anyone, for the kingdom is not at hand yet, right? For the time has not come. Well, now we come to this week, and there's no restrictions put upon the crowd. And I'll be honest with you, I've always been intrigued by this week. I've always been intrigued by the Sunday before. Even as a kid growing up in the church, you know, Palm Sunday, that, that was the Sunday that, you know, the kids would gather in the center aisle and we'd wave palm branches and, and I'd had friends who would try to, you know, hit Jesus as he came walking in and I'd tell them that that's not right. Like we're here to worship the Lord. I was that kid. But anyway, so we, it was Palm Sunday. And I remember being confused by it, to be honest with you, because I'm like, okay, well, you know, how can something change so quickly? And I think so many times as you look at the triumphant entry of Christ, we can kind of look at it through the wrong lens. Like we kind of see this as this, okay, for three and a half years, this has been building and that is true. But sometimes we can view Palm Sunday as finally the crowds get it. Like finally, they, they recognize him as Hosanna. They recognize him as the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. But we know that just five days after this, this same crowd that was crying out, Hosanna, was yelling out, crucify him. And so I want you to see something unique this morning. What I want you to see this morning is I want you to see ourselves in the crowd because all week long, the Lord has allowed me just to catch a glimpse of myself and the way the crowd responds to him. Because isn't that so true, right? We're, we're quick to praise his name. We're quick to lift high his name as long as Jesus is doing what we think he should do in our lives. 
Yeah, here's this crowd. They're not praising him. I, I would dare to say, and the scripture doesn't go into detail to say us, but they're not praising him because they recognize, okay, here, here's my savior. I'm surrendering my heart and my life. No, there was other motives behind it. There was prideful motives behind it. It was a crowd who says, hey, here's the one to deliver us from Rome. Here's the one to deliver us from the slavery that we've been to give us back our land. But what do we find in this story? That the moment Jesus did not fit into the box that they desired for him to fit in, the same voices, like us, right, that are quick to sing praise can be the same ones that are quick to turn. And I see myself in this. Like, I think so many times, you want to see the heart of a Savior? I mean, understanding that Jesus is omniscient in this. He's seeing beyond the exterior what it must have done to the heart of Christ to look into the eyes of these people and to see beyond just them praising his name, but to see a heart that's not truly been turned to him, selfish motives of why they were praising him. And to know that just a couple of days later, those same people who are quick to lay branches down, and lift high his names would be the same ones crying out for him to die. And how quick so many times we, if we're not careful, hey, Jesus, I'm going to praise you. I'm going to lift high your name. As long as you're matching up to the way that I think you should operate in my life. How quick we are to stray when he doesn't fit into that box. Take your Bibles, if you would, and turn with me to the Gospel of Mark. We're going to go to Mark this morning. Now, we know that this is recorded in the Synoptic Gospels. We know that, right? We know that we have this in Matthew 21. So I'd encourage you even as you go back this week, and and we're going to walk through Luke this week, but I'd encourage you to go read all of the Gospels, to go back and and look at some cross-references of of what some include, what some do not include. We know we find the story in Matthew 21. We find the story in John 12. uh, We find the story in Mark 11. We find the story in Luke 19. And we walk this path kind of the final week in the life of Jesus, that up until this point, Jesus would do these great things and say, okay, do not go and tell anyone yet. The time has not come. Recognizing that again, that that, that the religious leaders would be infuriated as they are lifting high this this man, this God-man, this Jesus. God knew in his sovereignty and his timing that this was the week, Passover week in Jerusalem, Many believe that there could have been millions gathered, that they're making pilgrims, pilgrimages to Jerusalem to celebrate the feast of the Passover. But on that Friday night, there would be thousands of sheep that would be slaughtered, but only one would take away the sins of man. Amen? And that's Jesus. I'm going to invite you to take your Bibles and stand with me in reverence to reading God's Word. Mark chapter 11. Let's look at Mark's account. I know, again, as you read through this story, I know as a kid growing up, I'm like, man, things went sideways quick. Like, why did it go so bad? What you find in this story is every detail is orchestrated, right? Every single thing that takes place here that God is sovereign over. And it's great encouragement to me that even in the last week of his life, right? I mean, you see Jesus in authority over it all, everything moving the way that he desired it to move. Brings me such great comfort when I don't always understand the whys of my life to know that I have a Savior who is in control. Amen? The title of the message this morning is the final week as we make our way to Easter Sunday morning. Beginning in verse 1, the Bible tells us this. Now, when they drew near Jerusalem to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples. Now, we don't know uh, who these two disciples were. None of the accounts give us their names. And he said to them, go into the village opposite of you. And as soon as you have entered it, you will find a colt tied or a donkey on which no one has set. Loose it and bring it to me. And if anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it. Notice that phrase there. The Lord 
has need of it, of a donkey. Don't miss that. We're all donkeys in some way, shape, or form. Can I get an amen? Amen. (laughs) Praise God that he's willing to use the donkeys of this world to fulfill his will. Amen. He don't need us, but he desires to do it. I'm just glad no one made the noise right there. Here, look at what it says. But some of them stood there and said to them, what are you doing, loosening the cold? And they spoke to them just as Jesus had commanded. So they let them go, the omniscience of Christ, even in this moment. Then they brought the cold to Jesus and threw their clothes on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their clothes on the road, and others cut down leafy branches from the trees, and they spread them on the road. Then those who went before and those who followed, now picture this crowd. Many believe that this, again, is the height of the popularity of Jesus. Thousands of people who have now surrounded him, front, back, middle. They're surrounding him. They're laying the branches down, and they're quick to cry out, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the kingdom of our father David that comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna. In the highest, verse 11, and Jesus went to Jerusalem. Now Luke tells us he goes into Jerusalem and he does something. What does he do? He weeps over the city. Mark says he goes into Jerusalem. So when he had looked around at all things, as the hour was already late, he went back out to Bethany with the 12. Join with me as we go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, our prayer this week is as we walk through this, that you would give us fresh eyes, Lord. That this would not just be something we look upon and say, yeah, I've I've heard the story, I believe the story, but Lord, may we come at it, Lord, expecting, anticipating change in us, that even as we look at our Savior this morning, Lord, allow us to see this through the lens of eternity. These were not just random events that happened in the life of Jesus, that every single detail was being orchestrated from the throne room of God, and so Lord, we thank you for that. We thank you, Lord, that as we read these passages of Scripture, that this happened, that this Jesus came and lived a perfect life so that he might die in our place. And as we go through this week, Lord, may we not miss that message and the celebration of it all, that our hope is found in Christ alone. So may the name of Jesus be lifted high in this place. We ask it, we pray it, and all of God's people said, amen. You may be seated. Now, someone asked me before we get into the message, did you make it to the national championship game? Yes, it was a close call. It was 10 minutes late. I was 10 minutes behind. And my father-in-law once again texted me the final outcome of the game. I'd already put it on silent, and I refused to look at it till 1230, so I made it through the game. Anyone happy that UVA won? Anybody? No? Can I just talk about my bitter hokey fans for a minute here that, that just have an issue? I'm sorry, I'm looking at you, brother. I'm looking at you, play, you know. You know, some of my hokey fans are like, I can't pull for UVA no matter what. That's okay. We still won a national championship for our state, right? All right, here we go. So, and if you're watching the Masters right now, you know, shame on you. Let me say that because you can watch it live. If you are, just don't give me any updates, all right, unless I ask for it. All right, here we go. March chapter 11. As you come to this, again, this is something that I, I look at it, and, and, and my prayer each week is, Lord, captivated and changed, right? Allow me, even as the one who's standing on this stage, to, to be captivated, you know, not only by what I read in this text, but, but changed by that. May I see it differently? And I look at this, and I see myself, right? I see the crowd, and I think to myself, yeah, finally, right, the crowd is celebrating Jesus, but we know that things switch quickly, Jesus was not doing what they thought he should do. 
We know that this is fulfillment of prophecy. 500 years earlier, the prophet Zechariah said these words in Zechariah 9.9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation. Lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foil of a donkey. To the detail, Jesus is planning every single one of these things. And what do you find? You find, again, the sovereignty of God. You find the authority of God. It wasn't that things just got crazy and things got out of control. All of this was being orchestrated every single hour, every single minute, every single second. And you see, again, the heart of a Savior. The Bible tells us he's in Bethany. Who's in Bethany? You have Mary and Martha, the sisters, right? The sisters of who? Lazarus. And we know that word is spreading. Me and theologians believe it's probably a couple of weeks that he had raised Lazarus from the grave. Some say a couple of days, but regardless of the time frame, it was the height of his popularity. I mean, word is spreading about this Jesus, right? And it's Passover week, and now here he is going into Jerusalem, and here they are lifting high his name. But if you go beyond the exterior, you see something. I believe what you find is not true, genuine salvation. What you find is not true, genuine faith. You find a fickle crowd, a crowd that, yes, was crying out the name of Jesus, but there was selfish motives behind it. The one to deliver us from Rome the one to deliver us from the social inequality, the one to bring us back into our proper land. Because we know that things turn very quickly. And the gospel writers paint this picture. Let's just walk through this passage, beginning in verse 1. Now they drew near Jerusalem. We know this is the Feast of the Passover. Many believe that the city of Jerusalem could swell to over 2 million people at this time. That some 30 years later, it was recorded in secular writings that over 250,000 lambs were slaughtered during Passover week. So it's Passover week. They're making their pilgrimage to Jerusalem. The Bible says they draw near to Jerusalem. This is Jesus' final journey into the city of Jerusalem. To Bethpage in Beth- Bethany at the Mount of Olives. He sent two of his disciples. And he said to them, go into the village opposite of you. And, and when you have entered it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has set. Don't miss that. Loose it and bring it to me. And if anyone says to you, why are you doing this? says, the Lord has need of it. And immediately he will send it here. So they went their way, found the colt to be tied by the door outside the street, and they loosed it. And so what Jesus said came true, verse 5. But some of those who stood said to them, what are you doing? Loosening the colt. And they spoke to them, just as Jesus had commanded, so they let them go. Now again, many have speculated, okay, was this prearranged? Some people think, okay, this obviously the owner of this donkey knew Jesus, or was even a follower of Jesus, because the moment that the disciple says that the Lord, don't miss that, the Lord has need of it, then they allowed the animal to go. But we don't know. The Bible doesn't deliver that for us. I believe what you find here is really the omniscience of Jesus. We know that all throughout his earthly ministry, right, he was constantly laying down, as the Bible would say, his prerogatives as God. The independent exercise of his deity as the son of God. And he was submitted, still fully God, but submitted to the following of the Holy Spirit. I believe what you find here is another example of Luke 5. If you remember a couple weeks ago, we looked at Luke 5. It's the first recorded miracle found in the gospel of Luke. It's when Jesus looks to Peter and says, cast out your nets. If you remember that story where Peter says, man, we've been fishing all night. We've not caught anything. But yet again, the foreknowledge, the omniscience of Christ, he says, no, cast out your nets here. And the Bible says that a great miracle is performed, that he gathers the fish there, a catch beyond anything that they had ever seen before. Once again, displaying the omniscience of Jesus, the all-knowing power of Jesus. 
But to get a glimpse of our Savior, right, as he's walking down the street of Jerusalem or riding upon a donkey, looking at the same people who are lifting high his name, knowing that those same faces, those same voices would soon be crying out, kill him. And yet he still does it. But in spite of us, in spite of the crowd, the love of the Father, the grace and mercy of the Son, fulfilling the greatest work that this earth has ever seen. Every detail orchestrated. Look at verse 3. He says, go into there and go and grab this donkey. Bring it back to me. And if anyone says, why are you doing this? Say this, the Lord has need of it. That's an intriguing statement to me. Here's the God of this universe, right? The Bible says who owns the cattle on a thousand hills. The God of this universe who says by all things, in all things, created all things. That everything we see with our physical eyes was created by the Lord Jesus Christ. And here he is saying to his disciples, I need a donkey to finish this work. There's a donkey that's going to be tied up. No one has ever ridden it before. I've heard guys preach entire sermons on this donkey right here. Because there's a lot of great truths here. There's a lot of symbolism here. You know, here is a donkey, and you go through, and I'm, I've always intrigued by the stories of the donkeys in the Bible, right? Mary rode into Bethlehem riding on what? A donkey. The coordination of David rides in on a donkey. The coordination of Solomon rides in on a donkey. Now, there's a picture here. It's a picture of peace. It's a picture of a king arriving in peace, right? Uh, the picture of war would be arriving on a white stallion. But here is Jesus riding in on a donkey. You can go to Numbers 22, one of the most fascinating passages found in the Bible about a donkey. It's the story of Balaam. Does anyone know that story? The donkey talking donkey. It's in there. If you don't believe me, go look at it, okay? I've told you before, I always hear the voice of Shrek's donkey, and I don't think that's the case. <laughs> Because when I went back and read even this past week, the donkey's a female. It's an interesting story where God is trying to get the attention of Balaam, and he puts an angel of the Lord to stand in the path. And before Balaam even sees the angel, the donkey sees the angel. And the donkey goes off the path, and the Bible says that Balaam starts beating this donkey. So you get back on the trail. Once again, the donkey sees the angel, veers off the path. He continues to beat this donkey. Three times it happens. Finally, the Lord gives the voice to it, says a female donkey. And the donkey looks at Balaam and says, why are you beating me? Can you imagine? Can we just talk about it for a second? And the Bible says that God even tells Balaam, you better thank this donkey. Because if it wasn't for this donkey, I would have killed you. If you go back and you read that passage of scripture. But to see that in the final hours, the final week, here's a donkey being used. That God doesn't need us, the donkeys of this world, right? God doesn't need us. He desires to use us in the fulfillment of his will. He don't need us. He doesn't need me. He doesn't need you. God's will will be done with or without us. If you believe it, say amen. Amen. But we are privileged. We are captivated. We're changed. We're privileged to be instruments, vessels to be used. Think about the worth and the identity of this donkey. I would imagine he's probably walking around going, you know what? Why couldn't God make me a squirrel? Why do you want to be a donkey? Like looking in the air and going, man, why why didn't God make me a bird? Like we laugh at that, but don't we do the same thing? God, why didn't you make me like this? God, why didn't you give me this family? God, why didn't you give me this spouse? God, why didn't you give me this career? But yet, what do you find even in the story of the donkey? You find the sovereignty of God, that there was a purpose, there was a plan. And the value of that animal was not in the fact that it was a donkey. The value of that animal is the fact that it was going to be used by the Lord Jesus Christ. It's our story. I would, I, I would imagine that that donkey kind of walked around with some swag. I, I, I don't know why I just used that word. I've never said that from the pulpit. 
But it's such a picture of us, too. I've heard guys take this picture of this donkey and say, you know, here's he tied to the things of this earth. Jesus releases him, right? There's application in that. That Jesus is in authority over him. There's application over that. That Jesus uses him and then brings him back to where he was. Changed. There's application over that. But regardless, we see these details playing out, and the gospel writers are providing these things. We know that it's the fulfillment of Scripture, but we also know that there's something that it's all leading to. Look at what happens here in verse 7. Then he brought the colt to Jesus, threw their clothes on it, and he sat upon it. You go a little bit further down to verse 8. And many spread their clothes on the roads, and others cut down leafy branches from the trees and spread them on the road. This was symbolic, right? This was a picture of, of not only peace, but it was also a picture of, of we give you authority, right? I lay my clothes. I lay my stuff down. You rest upon it. Therefore, I am submitting myself to my king. This was a fickle crowd. And the king that they had in mind was not the king that Jesus was going to come and establish. They were seeing crown, crown, crown. Jesus was seeing cross, cross, cross. That before there could be the crown, there had to be the cross. And what's so amazing about this, right, is at no point do the disciples say that. If you go back and you study the Gospel of John, you see that just one chapter before the triumphant entry, he gathers the disciples around, right? He's been laying things out bit by bit. But here, as he's getting ready to enter into the city, he lays the full thing out to them. Okay, guys, this is what's going to happen. We're going to go into the city. I'm going to be delivered into the chief priest's hands and blah, 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 blah. He's explained all this to those disciples. But yet nowhere in any four of the writings that we have in the triumphant entry do the disciples try to stop the crowd. Do you notice that? At no point do the disciples say, hold on, Jesus, this doesn't make sense. You just told us that you were coming to die. You just told us that you were coming to the city of Jerusalem to be crucified, but yet here are these crowds that are lifting your name and they're throwing down olive branches and they're praising the name of God. But at no point in time in the text, you see a disciple say, whoa, things are adding up here. Why? Again, I believe these were sinful men just like you and I. And there was still some selfish motivation behind them, right? I wonder if these disciples were thinking, well, maybe he doesn't necessarily have to go to the court. Like, like maybe, right, maybe they're finally getting it. Maybe the crowd is finally understanding who this guy is, who we've said that he was. Maybe they finally get it. Because we know that at the cross, does anyone know how many disciples were found at the cross? Just one. It's in this window of time that we know you go to John 13, and it's the gathering of the disciples in the upper room. He's washing the feet of the disciples. Guess who's in the room? It's Judas. So you see the heart of Jesus in this. Looking beyond the exterior, right? Doesn't he do the same to us? I wonder how many times he's seen Heath on a Sunday morning, quick to lift up his hands and praise the name of Jesus, right? Because things are going pretty well in my life. Things are good. And so I'm praising Jesus. But yet knowing in his omniscience that on Wednesday, the moment things go sideways, the same mouth that is lifting up the name of Jesus will be the same one that turns from his Savior Jesus. And yet he still loves me in spite of it. He still dies for this crowd in spite of them. Luke tells us he wept. We know that the next morning he goes into the temple, right? And this is where he begins to turn over stuff and say, you have made my house a den of what? A den of thieves. That same crowd right here that is crying out, Hosanna, Hosanna, chose Barabbas to be released. Just five days later, a convicted murderer, rather than the sinless, 
spotless lamb of God. You go to Luke's account, right? If you go to Luke's account, the Bible says that the Pharisees rebuked him, that the Pharisees rebuked the disciples, that the Pharisees even said to Jesus, teacher, tell your disciples, your learners, those who are following you, to stop lifting up your name because it's heresy. And if you remember what Jesus says in Luke 19, 39, it's that beautiful passage of scripture that says what? But he answered and said to them, I tell you that even if they are silent, even what? Even the rocks will cry out. I don't want the rocks to take my praise. Can I get an amen? Through the good times, through the bad times, whether I understand it or whether I don't understand it, I don't want to be like the fickle crowd. I don't want to be like the one who says, here you go, Jesus, you can have my life, you can have everything in it, as long as you operate the way I think you should. But Lord Jesus, you better stay within my box, right? Because the moment you start doing things that go beyond what I don't like and what hurts and what's uncomfortable, you know what? I'm going to find another way. And that can be the danger. That's why I have such an issue even with the prosperity gospel, the people that say, hey, just give your life to Jesus and he'll make you healthy and wealthy and you'll be blessed. Really, I don't read that in scripture anywhere. What I read is that your soul will be saved, your eternity will be secure. But what I read is that God uses all things in our lives, the good things, the bad things, and he's not as interested in our happiness as he is our holiness. So the question is this, in the moments of, of struggle, in the moments of the storm, will I be like the crowd? Will I even be like the disciples? Hey, I'll follow you as long as you keep doing cool things. But if my life come in, comes in jeopardy, like the disciples, where am I going to be found then? But even beyond the exterior, Jesus sees this. I believe the omniscience of Christ is on display. I believe you see that even with the donkey. I believe that the gospel writers inspired by the Holy Spirit allows us to see that because I believe that as he's looking at the crowd, he sees beyond just the outside. And yet he still walks the path that the Father has laid before him. You want to talk about grace. And look at what happens here. Verse 9. They spread their clothes in verse 8. They lay down the ponching in verse 9. Then those who went before them cried out, Hosanna, blessed he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the kingdom of our father David that comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. I read an article this past week that talked about the false coronation of the true king. What you find here is a false coronation, right? There's no coronation of Jesus being done here, right? There's nothing spiritual. There's nothing heavenly that's happening here, right? We know that the coronation from an eternal standpoint, Philippians 2 tells us that he is ascended after his resurrection, that he ascended to the right hand of God. That is his heavenly coronation that every tongue will confess, that every knee will bow, that Jesus Christ is Lord and Lord. And the Bible tells us there'll be an earthly coronation. Read Revelations 20 and 21, that he is coming again. If you believe that, say amen. Amen. He is coming again. And there will be his earthly coronation at that point, no longer riding upon a donkey, but now riding a great white uh, stallion. I almost say the great white throne. We'll be on that, but also a stallion. He came the first time in a different way than he's coming the second time. And even as you read this final week, man, it's going to be different. He came as a sacrificial lion, the Bible lamb. The Bible says he's coming back as the lion of Judah. He came as a humble servant. You see that in all the gospel writers. The Bible says he's coming again as a conquering king. He came the first time to die for the sins of the world. He's coming the second time to rule and to reign for all of eternity. He came the first time as a baby born in a manger. He's coming the second time, splitting the clouds, coming back to his earth as a conquering warrior. He came the first time, right? 
riding a donkey through the roads of Jerusalem. He's coming the second time, riding a great white stallion. May we not be like the crowd. Praises Jesus when it's convenient for us, for me. It's quick to lift high as long as things are going the way I kind of want it to go. I wonder if Jesus looked beyond the exterior from the hands that go up on a Sunday morning and the voices that are raised. Would he see a heart that even on Wednesday when our world is turned upside down, would still seek him, still praise him, and still cry out, glory to God in the highest. I pray that as you walk through this week with me, that you'll see your Savior in a different way. That we're the crowd here. We're the crowd. May we be found faithful when he comes again. Amen? With every head bowed and every eye closed. Philippians 2 says this, that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, those in heaven, on earth, and even under, that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Five days leading to the cross. This begins it. Filled with some of the greatest spiritual events, as we know because of God's word, in the history of the world. It's in these next five days that we know he will institute the Lord's Supper as they gather for that Passover meal. It's in these next five days that he will predict to his disciples that he is coming again. It's in these next five days that he will overcome in the Garden of Gethsemane as blood pours from his sweat glands as he cries out, not my will, Father, but your will be done. It's in this week that he will be betrayed by those who are closest to him. Thirty pieces of silver by one who would call himself a disciple. The Bible tells us that he would be denied. The name of Peter is listed at the front of every list of the disciples. Jesus, knowing this, didn't change the way he loved him, cared for him. Those who were closest to him in the moment things went off were quick to run. The question that I ask you is the question I've been asked. Where would I be found in this? It's one of the people in the crowd. Hosanna, Hosanna. As long as you do what I think you should do. But even in that darkest hour, and there's some of you in it this morning. Can we still lift high the name of Jesus? Can we still rest in his sovereignty, in his authority, in his timing? Can we calm our spirit to say the words of Christ, not my will, Father, but your will be done? Lord, I don't get it and I don't understand it, but I trust you. And just as I see every detail orchestrated in your word, Lord, may every detail, may you allow me to see it in my life falls underneath your hand. May we not miss it this week. As we walk through all the traditions and all the celebrations, 
personally see ourselves in this Easter story of what we deserve, and yet in spite of us, what he's given us. I'm going to ask you to stand with me at this time, if you would, as we go to the Lord. You know, I said it up front, and I'll say it again. You know, I don't believe in anything random. Again, you may be your first time here this morning. The Lord brought you here. I believe that. As we look at this weekend, we know that there'll be a lot of people that walk in those doors that view it as just a, hey, I'm going to church on Easter. Our prayer is that the message of this story right here, we'd be quick to share it from the lips of our mouths, but our lives would show that to a lost world who has no hope. Join with me, if you would, as we go to the Lord in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, as we look at your word this morning, Lord, our minds go back 2,000 years ago. To our Savior, your Son, walking the path leading to the place where he would die. Not because things were out of control, but because things were in control, your control. So, Lord, first and foremost, may we never get over that. Lord, for every born again child of God in this place who has been saved from their sins, Regardless of where our life is today, may we not get over the simple fact that the sinless, the guiltless died for the sinful, the guilty, that we might be set free. And may our lives reflect that. And Lord, our prayer again is that it wouldn't be a fickle crowd, that we'd rest, even in the struggles of life, in your goodness, in your purpose your sovereignty. So as we walk this week out together, Lord, may you change us through it. May it not just be another week, another celebration. May you change us as we see the greatest work that's been done in the history of the world. That our God would die for us. In the name of Jesus, be lifted high and all of God's people say.